to wear your winter boots or not to wear your winter boots. That was the greatest challenge of my morning. I don't know what yours was. Mr. Cooper was very concerned. We asked him to wear his winter boots to church, but that means he should probably take it off, so he's wearing socks right now. Everyone else is wearing shoes, Dad. Why am I in socks? So he asked me partway through singing if he could go get his winter boots back on. He doesn't want to be in socks. If that's the biggest battle that we go through today, today will be a good day. (laughs) Part of me can't wait till they're just a little bit older so I can get through like three songs in a row without having someone interrupt me. Dad, Dad, can I go get my winter boots? Daddy's singing Jesus Messiah right now. I know, but like, can I go get my boots? (laughs) No, no, son. You can do this in socks. Ah. Thank you to everyone who leads the children's church. I really appreciate that. Cooper and Jesse just love it. And thank you to everyone who volunteers in the toy room with the one to three-year-olds. I don't know if there's any one to three-year-olds here today. It might be really quiet. Austin's at home with the stuffed-up nose with Chantel. So there might not be anybody in that room today. Today's sermon comes from John chapter 6. And I just about gave this sermon away to someone else. But it didn't work out. It's mine. But this is a tricky sermon. Because at the end of it, most of Jesus' disciples quit. So I have to try to get through this without most of you walking out of the room partway through. It's not easy. Following Jesus was never meant to be easy. If it was, they all would have followed him. But very few do. But do you know who do? The ones who come to know who he is. And that's the thing that I realized the most clearly as I read through John 6. Was that it's coming to know who he is that is greater than coming to know about him. Even Dallas Block last week, who happened to preach from the Gospel of John. Go Dallas. From chapter 1. He starts off by going to chapter 20. And reading the theme of John's Gospel. And I know I've read it. I don't know, half a dozen times. It says that I didn't record every single miracle that the disciples witnessed. I didn't write them all down. But I did write these down so that you might believe in his name and receive life. The point of John's gospel wasn't to reiterate every single miracle. He could have, but that wasn't it. John's hope for you is not that you would come to a full knowledge of all of the acts of Jesus and then marvel at what he's done. His hope is that you would come to know who Jesus is and that that would give you life. So as John reveals at the end of the story, that's the lens by which we need to read the whole gospel with, right? As we read each story, how is Jesus revealing to us who he is And how is that leading to life in his name? At the very beginning, Jesus comes, light into the world. John the Baptist tells us that he's coming to bring salvation. He's coming to tabernacle, dwell among his people. Actually bring light into darkness. Darkness hasn't understood it and can't overcome it. But Jesus has arrived. Chapter 2 is a transformation of water into wine and the cleansing of the temple. But in chapter 3, there's an identity crisis. Nicodemus is sitting with Jesus, trying to figure out who he is. Because if Jesus is just a teacher, 
then that doesn't change Nicodemus's world. But if Jesus is who he claims to be, that changes everything. Because Nicodemus's whole world was built around following the rules of God to draw close to God. And Jesus says, I'm right here. Come to me. Not to my law, come to me. Nicodemus struggles with this. But we know who doesn't struggle with it? The woman at the well. In the very next story, Jesus shows up, reveals to her that I offer you living water. How can Jesus offer that? Because he's filled with the Spirit of God, so he can offer to her life. The Spirit of God. He can do that, and she, what? Believes. Not that Jesus is mighty and powerful. Jesus didn't have to multiply 5,000 pieces of bread in front of her. She came to believe who he was, what he said he was. Life. God. She goes to town, tells everyone she knows, and they all come to believe in him. Because they understood who he was. Then you get into John 6. And that's what we talked about two weeks ago. Jesus feeds 5,000 people with barley loaves during Passover. They've traveled across the Sea of Galilee to this place of wilderness, this place that's secluded from other towns. Because the disciples said, we can't just send the people away to go get their own supper. We're too far away from anything. So Jesus supernaturally feeds everyone, which harkens our minds back to the story of Moses. And of course, because Moses was famous for being their savior, Jesus is going to come, fulfill the role of Moses, but go beyond that. Because Jesus isn't just their savior in the form of Moses. He is God Almighty, the one who instructed Moses. His salvation is greater. But it follows the same pattern. There will be a lamb who will shed its blood for the saving of the people. There will be a cleansing through the water as people travel from life, right, into life, from death. They will arrive at the mountain where God gives his covenant to the people. Through Jesus, there will be all of those things. Sacrifice, baptism, and a brand new covenant. He is fulfilling Moses all over again, but it's going to be greater. Why? Because Moses' salvation wasn't lasting. Think about it. I was thinking about it this week as I was preparing. All those people, the ones who put the blood above their doors, the ones who walked through the Red Sea, went to the mountain, saw God descend on the mountain, received the law. Where are they right now? Right now, where are they? Do you know where? They're dead in the desert. They witnessed all those things, and they didn't make it. All of those things. How could they see all of that? The sacrifice, the cleansing, the new covenant. How could they witness all of those things and yet not make it to the promised rest? How couldn't they make it there? How could you witness the power of Yahweh and not believe in him, trust in him? What did it mean to them? And did God fail? God reveals his incredible power to all of them, and yet they all reject him? It's the next generation that walks in? This is the lens through which we read today's story. Jesus has multiplied the bread. Jesus has done the powerful sign. Now it's up to the people. 
Will the people choose to die in their unbelief or will the people choose to believe in him, know him, and follow him into the promised land? That's the context of John 6. So if you have your Bibles open, we're going to be starting at verse 25. I'm in my NIV Bible this morning, so if you're reading NIV in your Bible or on your phone, you should follow along with mine. And you're in NLT or ESV, the words will be a little different, but the story is the same. So this is just after Jesus has walked on water and just after he's fed 5,000 people. Verse 25 says this. When they found him on the other side of the lake, they asked him, Rabbi, when did you get here? Jesus answered, Very truly, I tell you, you are looking for me not because you saw the signs that I performed, but because you ate the loaves and you had your fill. Do not work for food that spoils, but for food that endures to eternal life which the Son of Man will give you. For on him, God the Father has placed his seal of approval. Remember we ended that sermon from John 6 with the question, the motive, why are you following him? Are you following him because you've seen something miraculous and you want another meal? Or are you following him because you've seen him reveal himself as God and you've come to believe that and accept it? He says to them, you're here because you're hungry. You're not here because you saw my sign and now have incredible faith. You want food, but I offer you something greater than that. God has filled me with his seal of approval. I have his spirit. I offer you eternal life, and yet you want barley loaves. Then they asked Jesus in verse 28, What must we do to do the works God requires? Why would they ask him that? What must we do? Did you see the word that they used to address Jesus in verse 25? Take a look. You have your Bible open, right? What does it say in verse 25? They call him rabbi. They call him teacher. Do they call him God? Do they call him Lord and master? What do they call him? Teacher. They're following him like students follow a rabbi. Why do students follow a rabbi? Because the rabbi instructs them in the law and how to live. And then if they would fulfill that law, then there's a creation of righteousness. So they're treating him like a teacher. They're addressing him like that. That's important. Pay attention to that. Rabbi, what must we do? That's what you ask a rabbi. What does God want from us? Jesus says, the work of God, it's this. Believe in the one that he sent. You want work to do? Here's your work. Believe. So they ask him in verse 30, What sign then will you give that we may see it and believe you? What will you do? Our ancestors ate the manna in the wilderness. Right? It's written in the Old Testament. He gave them bread from heaven to eat. Jesus said to them, Very truly I tell you, it's not Moses who's given you the bread from heaven. It's my Father who gives you the true bread from heaven. The bread of God is the bread that comes down from heaven, gives life to the world. Jesus is claiming to be the second coming of Moses, but greater, to be their salvation. So they ask him to demonstrate a sign of power like Moses. 
he was able to speak to God and bread sustain the people. If you are him, if you are the Savior, do that. Give us a sign. Because if we can see it, then we'll know. Jesus challenges that way of thinking. It's not bread from heaven you need. God has given you the bread from heaven. It's come down to give you life. He doesn't need to challenge Moses in a duel of miracles. He is the miracle that's come down from heaven. When he says to them that the bread of God is the bread that comes down from heaven to give life to the world, the people say to him, give us this bread always. That's what we want. Always, sir, give us this bread. We don't want that barley bread anymore. Give us that eternal bread, that bread that lasts forever. What does that remind you of? Do any other Bible stories stand out when they say, that's the bread we want? It makes me think of the woman at the well. Jesus offered her water that was living, water that would last forever, instead of that water from down in the hole. And what does the woman say? That's the water I want. You have supernatural water? Let me have a taste. We can just leave this water here in the well. I want that water. People respond just like that. Give us that bread. That's the bread we want, Jesus. Create some of it for us. But then verse 35, we see the revelation of Jesus. Jesus declared, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry. Whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. I am the bread of life. I don't have to tell you, you notice already, the I am statement is taking your memory and jogging it back to the third chapter of Exodus. When God revealed his name to the people. When Moses said, how do I just go to the Hebrew people and tell them that the God of heaven is commanding me to do this? How do I do that? What do I say? And God says, tell them I am is sending you. They'll know if you tell them that it's I am. Jesus grabs that identity and places it upon himself. I am the bread of life. But verse 36 In contrast, the 35 says, but as I told you, you've seen me and still you don't believe. Something's happening here in the crowd of people. They're in the presence of the bread that sustains people for life forever, and yet they're choosing not to believe. It's like the manna is being offered right to them and they're choosing not to pick it up and eat it. The manna won't sustain you if you leave it on the ground. You have to pick it up. You have to take it in. But this crowd of people aren't doing that. They're not believing. And then in verse 37, it might be one of the most challenging teachings in this chapter. He says in verse 37, All those the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never drive away. For I've come down from heaven not to do my will, but to do the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I shall lose none of all those he has given me, but raise them up at the last day. Verse 40, for my father's will 
is that everyone who looks to the Son and believes in him shall have eternal life and I'll raise them up at the last day. But it's those the Father gives me, verse 37, who come to me. We're going to see this again as we continue to read the chapter. Something is going on where not all people are going to receive Jesus. Just those that the Father draws to him. The rest will reject him. Something is going on where God is affecting the salvation of people who come to him. There's a drawing taking place. There's an influence of some kind. We're going to wrestle with that this morning. And I don't know if we're all going to leave settled on how that works. Don't worry, we'll come back to it. Verse 41. At this time, the Jews, they began to grumble about him. Why? Because he said, I'm the bread that came down from heaven. This is what they said, verse 42. Is this not Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How can he say I came down from heaven? Pete's sake, I've walked down the street. I know where his house is. He played with my kids when they were little, and he was young. How can he say he came down from heaven? We know where he grew up. I worked with his dad, met his mom. Ridiculous. And the crowd of people are grumbling about this. Jesus answered them, stop grumbling amongst yourselves. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws them. And I will raise them up at the last day. It's written in the prophets. They will all be taught by God. Everyone who's heard the Father and learned from him comes to me. No one has seen the Father except the one who's from God. Only he's seen the Father. Verse 47. Very truly I tell you, the one who believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your ancestors ate the manna in the wilderness, yet they died. But here is the bread that comes down from heaven, which anyone may eat and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. Whoever eats this bread will live forever. Those the Father draws. In the Gospels, it talks about the way being narrow to get to God and the way being wide, being broad, that walks away from God. For some reason, most of creation chooses to walk away from him rather than walk towards him. But there are people knit together by God in the womb of their mothers who will choose to come to him and believe in him. And God, being all-knowing, knows ahead of time who that will be. Jana read from Ephesians chapter 2, God has prepared good works in advance for people to do, ones who will come to believe in him. So who has God chosen to believe in him? And has God made a way for all people? Has he not? When the lambs lost their lives in Egypt and the blood was put across the doorposts, was that just on some people's houses or was that on everyone's house who was a Hebrew in Egypt? When God split the Red Sea wide open, were only some of them allowed to pass through or were all of them given passage through the water? 
right? When God descended on Mount Sinai, offered them the law, which was his covenant promise to them, was that extended to just a few of them or to all of them? All of them. And yet, where are they right now? They walked away from him. They were buried in the sand. Salvation was made available to every single one of them. And with simple belief in God, he would have carried them across the wilderness to the promised land, which would have been their salvation. And yet they chose not to believe. So is it surprising to us that Jesus follows the same pattern? That Jesus would come, die on the cross for all people, making a way back to God so that you and I could have this relationship that sin broke off that we couldn't have. And now all of us have the ability to have that relationship. And yet, most people will choose not to accept it. And they'll walk away from it. Some people will. And the Father knows who. He knit them together to believe in it. Many won't. Verse 51. Do you notice that I didn't read all of verse 51 when I read it the first time? I am the living bread that came down from heaven. Whoever eats this bread will live forever. This bread is my flesh, which I will give for the life of the world. Then the Jews began to argue sharply amongst themselves. How can this man give us his flesh to eat? Jesus said to them, Very truly I tell you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. That's an incredibly hard teaching. It's one thing to follow a rabbi that says, I have a way to God that all the other rabbis don't have. And this way is coming through me to God. That is the way. And you might be able to draw people into following this kind of a rabbi. But for him to say the only way in is by eating a piece of my skin. That's the only way. That's the only way. And he's standing in a crowd of hundreds of people. Well, how many followed him from the feeding of 5,000? Did 1,000 people follow him? Just eat a little skin. Just a little bit. You'll get in. There's life in my skin. Who wants some? And all the crowd just goes, no, we're not doing this. This is ridiculous. We bought the rest of what you were saying. This though, no, we're not going to eat your skin. The rabbi's crazy. How can he give us his very own flesh for salvation? What was Jesus referring to? We took communion like 20 minutes ago. All these hints back to his body being people's salvation, his body being people's lives, them having to take it in. Why? Because inside of us there is no life. So that we're actually going to have to take in his life, his flesh, his blood, his incarnation filled with the Spirit is going to be our source of life. Because inside of us is no life. Inside of the kindest most gentle, most gracious, loving person you've ever met who doesn't believe in Jesus. There is no life. Inside of them is someone who's worshiping something other than God. Inside of that person is sin because they're worshiping something other than God. And because there's sin inside of them, there is only death. 
So only by taking in Jesus do we receive life. We were enemies of God before we received his salvation. There was only death in us. Whoever eats my flesh, this is verse 54. It's a big story. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life. I will raise them up at the last day. For my flesh is real food. My blood is real drink. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood remains in me, and I in them. Then he gives an example. Just as the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so the one who feeds on me will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven. Now in comparison, your ancestors ate manna. They died. Whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. He said this in the synagogue in Capernaum. My flesh is real food. My blood is real drink. That makes me think about the Last Supper when he's sitting with his friends and they take that bread and they take that wine and they split it and they pass it around the group. And he says that this is a symbol pointing to my body, my blood. It makes me wonder if all of those Passover celebrations, all of those years, were just symbols building up to the real flesh and blood that would save the people. Not that lamb, not even that very first one back in Exodus. It didn't provide lasting salvation. It was temporary salvation. And then for 2,000 years, maybe more, they celebrate Passover over and over again until finally the real flesh and the real blood showed up, the real sacrifice that would save people from sin, the real blood that would cover people's iniquities and give them eternal life. I love that he contrasts Moses multiple times. Because the people are waiting to see. Is he actually greater than Moses? And he keeps stating. Moses gave you manna. That was death. He gave you manna. You died. He gave you salvation. It didn't last. I come to give you salvation. That is eternal. Life eternal. Greater than him. But you have to understand who Jesus is. Otherwise, why would he keep contrasting himself to Moses? So now we're at this pivotal moment where all of you and the disciples get to make a decision. Do you believe it or not? You've received this knowledge, but do you believe it or not? Do you know about him or do you know him? Because knowing about him saves no one. Knowing him changes everything. Like to the rest of the world, when we light these candles... It's nonsense. Supernatural God would take on human flesh to be a king that would be killed by his own people, willingly give up his life for his servants. But when you know him, you know that that means everything. Do the disciples understand who he is? Do you understand who he is? Do you go through these practices because you know enough about God to know that this is the way that he wants you to live? Or do you go through these practices and these motions because you know him? 
the verse on the wall says you're supposed to grow in grace and knowledge of Jesus. Does the crowd know him? Verse 60 says, on hearing it, many of his disciples said this. This is a hard teaching. Who can accept it? Aware that his disciples were grumbling. Now remember, these disciples aren't his apostles. These are simply students following Jesus, the rabbi. That'll be clear in a few verses from now. Aware that his disciples were grumbling about this, Jesus said to them, Does this offend you? Then what if you see the Son of Man ascend to where he was before? If you can't accept that he will give up his body and his blood for the forgiveness of the world, how will it strike you when he ascends back to the throne from which he came? You think this offends you? One day I'll sit with my father and then we'll see. The Spirit gives life. The flesh counts for nothing. The words I've spoken to you, they're full of spirit and life. Yet there are some of you who do not believe. It says, for Jesus had known from the beginning which of them did not believe and who would betray him. He went on to say this in verse 65. This is why I told you, no one can come to me unless the Father has enabled them. From this time, many of his disciples turned back and no longer followed him. Jesus willingly admitting, I know most of you won't follow me. Very few will. The Father has only enabled it in a few people. This is a hard teaching. Unless you know who I am. That changes everything, but you don't get it. So you're going to walk away. And they do. The crowd stands up, the crowd leaves. You think this is the opposite of Jesus building his kingdom. He's just done this miraculous sign in the sight of 5,000 different people. There's now crowds of people following him. This is his capital moment. All he has to do is win them in, draw them in, and he's got the beginning of his kingdom. Hundreds of people, if not thousands of people, that will follow him, die for him, His army, the king with a kingdom. Yet he says, I know that unless the Father has enabled you to come to me, you just won't. And they stand up and they leave. Jesus turns and looks at his apostles, his 12 disciples. They're still there. And what does he say to them? Verse 67. You do not want to leave too, do you? Jesus asked the twelve. And Simon Peter responds like this. Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. We've come to believe and know you are the Holy One of God. I told you, pay attention to how the crowd addresses Jesus and then look at how his disciples address him. The crowd addressed Jesus as Rabbi. What does Peter address him as? Lord. Why doesn't Peter call him Rabbi? 
because Peter knows who he is. Where are we going to go? You have the words of life. We've come to believe and know who you are. We know who you are. We're not going anywhere. You're the holy one of God. You are the set apart one. Holiness is you. Holiness isn't an attribute of you. You are holiness. We know who you are. The next two verses, as we close the story, Jesus replied, have I not chosen you, the twelve? Yet one of you is the devil. He meant Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, who though one of the twelve would later betray him. Even one of Jesus' own twelve would betray him. Did Judas know who he was? Did Judas have salvation? Did Judas lose it? Well, the verses just before this say that all people who God draw to me, I will not lose out of my hand. So did God lose one? Or is God consistent in his teaching? And did Judas not know who he was? That's why we're here. I'm, I'm young enough to be most of your grandkid. I don't need to tell you why you're here. You know why you're here. You've been a part of this your whole life, most of you. Why are you here? Because you've come to know who he is. You're not here because this music is amazing and there's no way you could sit at home and find good music. You're not here because the person who does the talking is just an incredible talker. You're not here because this is your only chance to see your buddies and you just can't wait all week to see your buddies. Why are you here? You're here because you know who he is. And that changes everything. That's changed your heart. That's filled you with life. That gives all these songs that we sing their incredible meaning. That gives the candles their meaning. It means that this scripture is true and that it's living and it's active because it's written by the Holy One. It's because you know who he is. The rest of the world doesn't know. That's what's heartbreaking. They don't know. Are they sinful? Are they evil? Are they broken? Yeah. Was I? Am I? Yeah. But I've come to know who he is. doesn't really feel like an Advent sermon, does it? To be honest, I think it really fits with what we talked about today. When I look at the candles, I get excited to celebrate Christmas. I get excited to teach my boys as they ask me, Dad, why do we light the candles? Well, it's because of who Jesus is. Is it because he's God? That's right. And he came as a baby. That's right. But he made all of us. And he came as a baby? Yeah. Wow. Because once you come to know who he is, it changes everything. I hope that for you this Christmas, as you read through these stories, as you watch us go through the Advent celebrations, as you sing the songs, I hope this means everything to you. And I hope that as you pass down this faith to those around you and to other people, I hope that's why you follow. I hope the teenagers that come through youth group, I hope that's why they follow him. 
Not because we did a great job in Sunday school of teaching them David and Goliath. He's powerful, but because, wow, I've come to know him. He's my savior. He's my king. I want to follow him forever. Let's pray together before we go home today. Father in heaven, I pray that you would honor this reading of your word by revealing truth to us by your Holy Spirit. Lord Jesus, would you be our instructor and our teacher? Would you offer us wisdom as we read your word? Would you help us to interpret it and know what it means? Thank you, Father, for this morning and the opportunity to light these candles and sing these songs and reflect on who you are and what you've done. Thank you for communion. Thank you for the symbol that we hold, the memories that we have of this promise that we're living in right now. That we are saved at this moment and yet waiting for salvation to come. Father, I don't know how how not to feel heartbroken for the people in our community and in our town who don't know who you are. They're celebrating Christmas, but they have no idea, so many of them, who you are. I just wish they knew. And I pray, Lord, that you give opportunities to our church family to tell people about who you are and why you came. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you for my church family here at Bridgeway. I pray that you would take care of them, Lord, and shape their hearts to be like that of your son, Jesus. That they would receive life from him and they would live in that life and that darkness would not overcome them. Thank you, Jesus, that you offer this life to all who would believe. Lord, give us courageousness, give us boldness, like give, us, ah, give us tenacity. I want us to be fearless apostles, people sent to go take this life and this light to a world that is just blind and walking in darkness. We're not better than anybody. We just carry a light that they don't have. And man, I want people to see it. Man, I want them to see it. Thank you, Jesus. Take care of this church, Lord Jesus. I pray that you dismiss them with your blessing. Take care of them and take care of their families, Lord Jesus. Give them encouragement. Fill them with your spirit to have power. Give them peace. I pray this in your holy name. Amen. We'll see some of you tonight if you come to sing at 7 o'clock. And others, we'll see you next week.